God is in his heaven and in his grace he's spoken to us. Let's have ears to listen to him. Thanks for joining me today at the Bread of Life. I'm Joe Van Hoogen. I've been the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life radio program for well over 20 years. This program comes to you as a ministry of the International Disciple-Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. We want you to know what we're doing to reach the world for Jesus Christ, and we invite your partnership with us. Just go to traincpe.org to learn more. I would also like to invite you to participate in the worship and teaching of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, where I'm the Bible teacher. You can learn about our location and time of worship by going to breadoflifeboise.org. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul declares that the ministry of the gospel is to bring people to the obedience of the faith. Now, this can mean one of two things. It can mean that having saving faith in Jesus Christ is in itself an act of obedience, or that faith in Jesus Christ produces acts of obedience from that point on. Today, we will decide which one of these it is. They're both the aim of our gospel message. We want people to obey the gospel by believing in Jesus Christ and at the same time, having believed in him, obediently believed in him, we want them to so believe in him that they will follow and obey all of his commands. But first, let's look at this obedience of faith as obedience as faith. Obedience as faith. The propositional and personal faith that we have in the gospel is a compelled faith. It is a compelling faith. The truths that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, that there is a God who's made you and created you who your sins are against, a God who requires of you a righteousness in order that you can be with him, and a God who will judge you for your sins and your lack of righteousness, According to the Bible, all these propositions that I've just shared with you are something that all human beings are being made aware of. The Lord Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit is working in the world, convicting the world of three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. It's like a cipher. I've mentioned this before. This is a passage that we keep coming back to because it's like a cipher that helps us decode what's happening in the world all around us. It's not something we understand simply by understanding the passage. That's taken from John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. It's not because we've just simply broke down the Greek and we've looked at the grammatical historical analysis of the text and we understand the different syntax of the words and so we can say this is what the words mean. But it's also something that if it's true, we can explore and see in the lives of people all over the world and what you see in the lives of people all over the world is they know they're sinners that they long to be and they're searching for a righteousness that will bring them into some state of transcendence because there's an unease in their life and also that they know they're not righteous and so they also have this great sense of judgment their religions are all wrapped around somehow mitigating their sin increasing some level of righteousness in order to avoid judgment But every religion, every false religion, is built around somehow dealing with these three things. What does it tell us? It tells us that the Spirit of God is working in this exact way in the lives of people. He's convicting people of sin all over the world. He's convicting them of their need to be righteous. He's giving them a desire to be righteous, and they know they're not. He's also presenting to them this reality that judgment is facing them. We see this throughout the world. We see it everywhere we go. And this is telling us that 
God is laying the groundwork, the Spirit is contending in such a way to convince people of these truths that, in a sense, they're without excuse as he brings them to the truth of the gospel. Also, this same passage in John chapter 16 tells us that the life that Jesus Christ has lived, his sinless life, his perfectly righteous life, the fact that he offered himself up on behalf as a sacrifice for our sins, a sacrifice that satisfies what we lack and provides salvation to us by faith in him, is also something that the Holy Spirit is actively communicating to those who learn this truth. And so, in John 16, verses 8 through 11, where the Lord Jesus speaks of this convicting work of the Holy Spirit, he speaks of a turn, a historical turn in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, where now, through the witness of the church and the proclamation of the gospel, people are convicted of these truths even more forcefully because of Jesus Christ. They'll be convicted of sin because they believe not in me, he says. They'll be convicted of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. My resurrection and my ascent into heaven is a demonstration of my absolute righteousness. And they'll be convicted of me because the prince of this world has been judged at the cross. All of the sinister purposes of the enemy that we are bound to were exposed. His desire to destroy God and to exalt himself above God. And that's in the heart of the rebel. That's what we see is the reality behind our own resistance and refusal to turn to God and our own rebellion. These are things that the Spirit of God is actively doing. Now, I am not capable of knowing to what extent the Holy Spirit is doing that in the life of an individual. I can't look into the heart of a person and know to what extent they're being convicted of their sin or they're being convicted of righteousness or they're being convicted of judgment. To what extent the Holy Spirit is pressing upon them the reality of who the Lord Jesus is when we tell them about Christ and exposing that truth or even prior to that moment how the Holy Spirit is conditioning people to long for like Job did, a mediator, somebody who's holy and righteous and true that can bridge the gap for them because they know they failed themselves. I do know the hero worship that we see in the world. I do know the way that the people around the world are constantly reaching out to supposed messiahs and saviors shows you they're looking for this individual. I don't know to what extent, but what I understand from Scripture and what I understand from this very statement, the obedience of faith, is that the Holy Spirit is so actively engaged in these things in the lives of every person that they have a sufficient reason to be compelled, a sufficient witness to them to be compelled to belief in Jesus Christ and belief in the gospel to such an extent so that when they do not believe in it, it's an act of disobedience. It's an act of disobedience. That it's sufficient enough that on the day of judgment, their unwillingness to believe in these things will be set against them and be marked against them as a point of their judgment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul talks about when Christ returns with his angels. And it says at that time he'll come to judge all those who know not God nor obey his gospel. Don't believe. God is communicating a truth. We somehow think that there's this dark world where there's no light and God's not sending forth a witness that we're treading against a current that we'll never be able to overcome, but God by His Spirit is contending in such a way that people are accountable to Him to believe. In fact, the reason they don't believe is told us in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who 
suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is instructing men and teaching men and the Spirit is contending with men and it's deep and profound and it's weighing in against their existential thoughts and their own existence. It's them and God speaking and they suppress it. But their suppression of truth is not an excuse for disobeying it or resisting it. So if the Bible calls for an obedience that is faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God is pressing an interest in these truths surrounding the gospel upon all human beings so that they are without excuse. Actually, if you think about this for a moment, I think it would be wrong to demand or command a person to believe or profess in something that is not apparent to them. In other words, it would be wrong to compel a person to believe in the tooth fairy. It'd be wrong to compel a person to believe in Santa Claus or, you know, some politically correct thing nowadays that a he could be a she or a she could be a he, that you've got to believe those things and state those things. And I think that's kind of wrong. It's coercive and manipulative. But at the same time, it's not improper to command a person to assert, for example, a little child on a math test that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's kind of evident. It's, it's not wrong on a history test, and by the way, I know it's the end of the school year, so tests are coming up for students, right? And it's, it's not wrong for a student to be able to know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's not wrong to compel them to those types of answers. So in the matter of faith, to compel a person to believe in something as an act of obedience, there must be something compelling to bring them to that point. And my point here is, there is. God says there is. I have to believe him. I have to accept that. I actually am skeptical of true skeptics. I tell people that I'm, you know, an agnostic is someone who says that they don't really know if there's anything that's true, and I'm somewhat agnostic about agnostics. I'm not sure that I believe that there are people that don't know there's things that are not true, right? And an atheist says, well, I don't believe there's any God whatsoever. I'm atheistic. I'm a-atheistic. I don't believe there's an atheist. I think deep down inside they know. And they're pushing back on these things, and to some extent, other than showing that I might have some little bit of intellectual heft to carry along some of the argument with them so they don't bypass me altogether. Ultimately, the thing that's going to convict them are the truths that they know they're sinners. They're pursuing themselves a righteousness. By the way, why does an atheist become so vocal in proclaiming his ideas unless he's trying to establish some sense of righteousness above other individuals? Why? Because God has put that in his heart. He won't succeed at it. Not not until he comes to the one who's died in his place, the sinless, perfect one. These are the things we need to talk to people about. So when Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that a person is saved by faith and not by works, so that no one can boast, he's saying that salvation is not the outcome of any trust you can put in your own moral actions or efforts. It is a trust that you have to place in a work that has been done entirely by Jesus Christ, that's the propositional faith, and a work that can be done by him alone, that's personal faith. But that said, this trust that we're talking about, this faith that we're talking about, is in a sense, a work. It is the one work or act of obedience necessary for your salvation. It is an act that is compelled by the evidence and the work of the Spirit pressing that evidence upon the hearts and minds of the individual. We looked at John chapter six in our scripture reading this morning. 
There you have the story of the Lord Jesus feeding the 5,000, taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying it and feeding 5,000 individuals. When they see it happen, they say, this has to be the prophet. This has to be the Messiah who's coming. And then they try to take the Lord Jesus by force to make him their king. What kind of king do you want? Someone who can multiply bread out of nowhere. What kind of leader of an army that would lead you in conquest over the world powers of Rome do you need more than anyone else? Somebody who can keep the bread lines going to feed your forces and your armies as you go out to war and battle. Let's make this man our king. Lord Jesus sees that it's going to take place. It says that he removed himself from the presence. He went up in the mountains. At the same time, he must have given instruction to his disciples. They went down to the boat. They'd come to that place in, and they sail across the sea. A storm comes up so powerful and so strong that all through the night, they're not able to make any headway. Four miles of trying to move along and not reaching to the other side still. And in the middle of the storm, the Lord Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And uh, they make their way across to Capernaum. Now, these individuals see that the Lord Jesus is not there the next morning. They see the boat that the disciples had departed in. They know Jesus didn't depart in it. They can't find Jesus anywhere. And so they gather up and they go over to Capernaum looking for the Lord Jesus. And when they find him, they ask him, how in the world did you get over here? How did you come here? And the Lord Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He simply says, you're, you're not coming to me because of the miracles you saw me perform, but because... I fed your bellies. You want more food from me. Do they have a compelling reason to believe in him? Have they experienced enough of him to be compelled to faith in him? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus will tell them that the work that God gives them to do is to believe in him. He calls upon them to take him as the bread of life and the water of life. We'll consider this compelling nature of saving faith and the call to obedient faith in our next broadcast. Thanks for listening to the Bread of Life today. To learn more about our ministry, to take this gospel around the world and how you can help us, go to traincpe.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.